Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. Thank you. Episode 65. You're welcome, Brad. I, I keep inviting you and back. I keep showing up. <laughs> Here we are, 65 times later. <laughs> 65 times later. Uh, okay. So today, there are three different things we want to talk about. We want to talk about Kenosha. We want to talk about a vaccine-related thing. <laughs> and we want to talk about the new University of Austin. The last two are related, so we're going to begin with Kenosha, which is which stands alone a little bit and, and is probably going to be shorter than the other two. Kenosha is the place where Jacob Blake was shot, wounded. He didn't die. Uh, there were riots afterward. This was during the time when uh, Black Lives Matter was big, and there was lots of uh, lots of protests. This one was certainly a riot. There was burning and looting. Um, Kyle Rittenhouse is now on trial. If you followed any news in the last week, you probably heard about this. It's, It'd be hard not to. Which is surprising. Yes, uh, it surprises me. There are a lot of other cases that you could be following right now, uh, or at least other things you could be looking at, and then there have been other cases that seem more, well, less clear-cut <laughs> than this one. But no, this one has got a lot of attention. I thought I thought it would kind of uh, slide under the radar. No, and it's, it's made it quite big, and it's been quite political. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it has. I've been surprised. You know, um, and it's it's something that we talked about a while ago, a long time ago, about the about the shootings and about how how the the left and the right made up their mind almost immediately about about Kyle Rittenhouse's guilt or innocence. And we we made the comment, and basically our whole episode was was about the fact that there's not enough evidence and to sit tight and wait. And now we've reached the point that you're supposed to sit tight and wait for as we've got this court case that is looking at the evidence and looking at whether or not he's innocent and guilty. And strangely enough, yeah. it seems no one's changed their mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, well, we looked at you could have made an initial assessment based on what was available. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could you you have to recognize that whatever that assessment was 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 in the absence of some evidence that was going to come forward, right? That could change mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. and especially since especially since the events hinge on an initial event that then kind of cascades. Uh, the the people chasing him are is in part related to the first shooting when he uh, shoots Rosenbaum, and that. And so what happens there with it between him and Rosenbaum is absolutely Yeah, critical. there's lots of little details that even though you yeah. have some of the information doesn't mean you have the full story on what happened there. Right, right. So our initial assessment of what was there was that it appeared to be self-defense from what we knew. It appeared that he was being attacked in each of the cases, um, being chased by Rosenbaum when he in that first case. Uh the evidence that has since come forward has confirmed that. There's been more evidence suggesting that uh, Rosenbaum was lying in wait for him and and then chased him and tried to grab the rifle, and that this is when Kyle Rittenhouse turned to shoot him. Seemed to be self-defense. The others are similar in that they he's being attacked. Um, he's trying initially to just run, not not use violence, and then turns and fires. Shoots one other person who dies. Rosenbaum died, the first person. And, uh, and then the, the third person, I believe, in the shooting order. Not, the, the second two were very close mm-hmm, together. Yes. And, but I um, think that's correct on the shooting order. The, 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 that third one, uh, actually drew a gun, pointed it at him, and then was shot. Um, or was in the process of pointing mm-hmm. it at him when he was shot. So in all these cases, it appears to be self-defense and all of the things that have come forward, all of the details that Brad mentioned, the, the witness testimonies, right, that we might not have had available immediately, uh, an FBI surveillance video. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Turns out when you look at, when you're looking through your Wi-Fi options and one of them says FBI surveillance van number six, <laughs> it, it was actually there this time, right? <laughs> flying a drone or something and had some overhead video. Um all of these have made the case clearer and clearer that it was in self-defense. Um, to the point where a lot of a lot of people have suggested that this shouldn't be a case at all. That the, the prosecutor should not have brought these charges because the evidence, and by these charges I mean uh, charges of murder essentially, mm-hmm. um, 
that these charges were so clearly wrong. Uh, and that, I think that stands pretty well, but that's not what's been the most interesting thing about this case. Well, and, 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 and the thing is, is that, is that what I would argue is that, you know, probably some charges should have been brought by a prosecutor at some point. What those mm-hmm. charges are is, is another question. And part of the, part of the problem is the fact that the charges were brought forward so incredibly quickly after the case that it begs the question how political is this? You know, how political uh-huh. is this when the charges are brought out two days later and the charges are some of the most severe options possible, even though already there was a lot of evidence that it looked like self-defense, even back mm-hmm. then, begs the question, you know, you know, why? And and I think it's pretty obvious that, as we've seen with the media following of this case, that this case is in many ways a continuation of the Black Lives Matter movements and protests and George Floyd and everything else. And it's a continuation of that. And so it's just become political. It's just become a political yeah. issue like any other. You know, Kyle Rittenhouse is not a 17-year-old kid who got involved in what I would describe as chaotic events in the middle of protests and riots and fires and, and crap happened. No, Kyle Rittenhouse is a symbol of white supremacy in all of its forms uh-huh. and and these people who were killed by him are a symbol of black lives matter even though you know that's just not it's not accurate to this case it doesn't really matter it doesn't really matter the specifics right. of the case don't really matter you know and and that's true of of so many things i mean in this in this case you know he's being accused of being a white supremacist even though all of the individuals that that were shot were were white as far as I understand it. You know, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, a, yeah. I'm not an, I don't know, I don't know what it's called when someone, you know, you know, can decide their uh, ethnicity and all of that, but I'm not a specialist. You know <laughs> the, the word I'm looking for? You know, but I can't, can't I, tell you what it's, what it's called. I don't, but, I don't, but I'm sure there is such a thing. And I'm sure there's a funny version of that thing as well, because it's. And I was going to guess, <laughs> and then I realized how stupid I'd sound. So I decided to withhold that. <laughs> My guess is. Right. Whatever the case is, I mean, the fact that he shot three white people is besides the point in that, like, as you were saying, that the story is that he was there because he wanted to shoot people, specifically black people. And these white people were a part of this protest mm-hmm. in favor of black people. And so it's the whole the whole story the initial story was one of racism. And the facts don't bear out any claim of racism. Uh yeah, there hasn't been a single accusation or a single shred of evidence that suggested he was there for racist reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just a like I said, it's, there was a story. The facts have now become very clear, and they don't support that story. But that story is still alive and well. Um, you can look at different news articles about this. <laughs> the, the headlines, the headlines, are funny in that normal black humor way, where you're like. What are you talking about? Like, why is this the headline? The headline should be, it appears that Kyle Rittenhouse had self, you know, fired in self-defense or something like that. If you wanted to learn about the case, mm-hmm. instead it focuses on other things. Or like, not even it appears it was self-defense, but you know, you know, uh, you know, key witness testimony, you know, states, you know, that Kyle Rittenhouse yeah. only fired after gun was pointed at him. You know, something like that. Right, right, right. Confirms that Rosenbaum was trying to go specifically after Rittenhouse or, you know, these are, these are the things that, which, on which the case yeah, hinges these, on. these crucial facts and details. Yeah. Instead, it's like Kyle Rittenhouse cries or, <laughs> right, or Kyle, uh, what were some of the other ones? Uh, man, man expresses uh, how he thought he was going to die when, when, you know, the surviving, mm-hmm. the survivor expresses his fear of death as Kyle Rittenhouse before Kyle Rittenhouse pulled the trigger and shot him. Yeah, in the because arm, right? because that's like, not relevant to the case, really. I mean, that's not that's that's not, not what the case hinges on of whether or not the guy who got shot thought he was going to die. If he didn't think he was going to die, does that mean Kyle Rittenhouse is innocent? You know what I mean? I, didn't <laughs> right. I thought I was just right. fine. Then Rittenhouse shot me. Oh, well, then he's not guilty of anything. Oh, but you thought you were going to die and then he shot you? Yeah. Yeah, he should go to jail. It doesn't make no, sense. Clear, that's, not, yeah. that's not relevant. What's relevant Clearly is the goal why is he to, shot you and what happened. Right, right. What that is relevant to is to garner sympathy mm-hmm. 
if you think that Kyle Rittenhouse was in the wrong and to to magnify the evil that he has that he has committed right it's it's this is for people who've already decided what's happened mm-hmm. uh to tug at the at sympathy uh, and different things it's a lot there's a lot of articles and people wondering if Kyle Rittenhouse's crying was uh was acted or mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. right Again, like no, not- I think uh, I think uh, LeBron James <laughs> tweeted out something about how yeah, yes. how Kyle Rittenhouse is clearly faking it and should just stop. <laughs> he starts like panicking. He's like hyperventilating. It's it, it clearly very very uncomfortable. Whether and whether he's acting it or not, again, is completely irrelevant. Right? Doesn't doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um. Yes, a lot of a lot of a uh, courtroom actually is a kind of drama playing out before the wit before the jury right um but i you wouldn't ask a 17 year old to fake cry <laughs> for, to you begin sure, with you, like, sure hope you don't rely on you don't re- hopefully you're not relying on, on that a, when all of the evidence is already in your favor by the way i think he is 18 when i said 17 i was, I yeah, was you're referencing right, you're right. when it happened but i believe he is 18 now you're right at this point he is 18 um he was 17 when it happened or he might um, even be 19. How long has it been? It's been he, a long time. He could time. be. It's been a while. It's crazy. It's been a while. But he, uh, what's it, it is interesting that in, in some ways people have a sense of whether they they want to assign what ha- blame for what happened on him in part because uh, because they think he shouldn't have been mm-hmm. there. Right? That the decision for him to be there was an immoral decision. Mm-hmm. That that this kind of thing where you volunteer to go protect businesses they use the word vigilantism right this is a, a an act of vigilantism uh, it's not well and, <laughs> like, and something like, i've found so weird about that because because i understand the argument you know you should never be there you know you shouldn't or you should, if you were really there for peaceful purposes then why would you bring you a, gun, have a weapon right? mm-hmm. and my my mm-hmm. immediate response to that is well what about this third guy you know the guy who was testifying who had a weapon there, but he was just there to peacefully protest. You know, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, Kyle Rittenhouse brought a gun. That's how we know he had evil intentions. But the guy Kyle Rittenhouse shot who brought a gun and was there to peacefully protest only had innocent intentions. You know, if bringing a gun makes you guilty, then they should both be guilty. And that guy should be on trial next. Right. And it's a silly argument to begin with. You, you, you can protect property. You don't need, uh, you don't need permission. Like a security guard does not get some kind of special police badge or something like that. Well, and it's important to note that it's, that if the case were, well, Kyle Rittenhouse stood in front of a building and people came towards that building and then he started shooting them, then you could have the argument, oh, well, can you use lethal force to defend that building? Uh But if he says Uh he's there, you know, to, you know, like, you know, put out fires, give medical attention, and then it becomes different, you know? Uh-huh. Because yes, at no point, point. Did, did he, did he you know, use physical violence to stop people from attacking a building, as far as I understand. Right, or to rob a, mm-hmm. No, you're right. That was, that was part of the intention of why he was there. That was why that and to give medical aid. But you're right, that that never, that was not the events that played out. It was when he left and he was going somewhere else that, uh that he was uh, attacked. And it's at that point that, that, uh, that things took a turn. Um, we, we now have, uh, this is, we're recording on Saturday, and just yesterday they announced there are going to be some lesser charges that the prosecution has put forward that the jury can consider, which is going to factor in whether or not there's going to be some kind of compromise on some lower charge, which makes sense. The prosecution has not done a good job in this case. In fact, you could easily argue they've done a bad job. And yeah. yeah. The prosecutor face palms at one point, like literally, you know, asks a question, gets <laughs> like through his, through his own decisions to put someone on the stand and things. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. leads to such a, such a, uh, a piece, uh, such a strong piece of evidence against him that he he literally face palms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the one where the the witness says that Rittenhouse didn't fire on him until he pointed his gun at Rittenhouse. <laughs> was that what that it was happened? that? It, that's all. That's that's why I brought that one up because what happens is he drops that bomb. It's so bad that the prosecutor face palms, 
And all of the news articles <laughs> talking about that witness testimony talk about the fact that he was so afraid for his life before he got shot. Like that was the big <laughs> bomb from that. You know, that was the bombshell testimony. testimony was that he was so afraid for his life. Not the fact that he destroyed the whole reason the prosecution brought him up there. And anyways. Right. Yeah, it's it really is. It really is odd. So there have been a number of, or, sorry, you were going to go somewhere else oh, before. I was say, so we, we have the, the lesser charges that are being brought forward. And so we don't know what's going to happen with this jury. It's possible that, that he may get convicted of some of those lesser charges. I'd say it's very mm-hmm. unlikely at this point that he's going to get convicted of the, the primary charges that were originally brought, which is why the prosecution would even consider bringing in the lower charges. If they thought yes. they were going to win, they wouldn't do that. Yeah, so these are lower charges for the same events, mm-hmm. but uh, but uh, not different crimes, but a, a different type of crime with that event. So yeah, so they're 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 these charges are mutually exclusive from the original yeah, charges. Yeah, moving you can't from, have from both. first degree to second degree. And- yeah, they're not additional charges; they're different charges. Um, yeah, uh, there one interesting thing of note in there is that. The prosecutor tried to get him, tried to imply that by staying silent, Kyle Rittenhouse was was admitting to guilt. Mm-hmm. Since since Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, you know, judging from his his conversations with the police and the way he interacted with them, and then his silence between then and the trial and these these different periods in which he didn't say things, that this implied something about it. And the prosecutor ended up getting berated by the judge. Uh, because you can't, you can't do that. You can't say that because someone, that someone's choice to use the Fifth Amendment to not speak means they're guilty is an admission of guilt, right? It, it eliminates the entire point of that choice. Mm-hmm. You say yes, you can, you can be silent if you want, but we're going to assume that if you're silent, that means you're guilty. Right? <laughs> like that's, that's not that completely eliminates the mm-hmm. point. There, there are a lot of interesting constitutional law cases that you can look at. From you know, from just sixty years ago, or even less, um, and of course, many before that, where the police are basically coercing confessions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're they're doing all kinds of things that, at this point, are are simply not allowed because, in practice, they let the police do things that were, in theory, supposed to be prohibited. Right? Things like coercing people to to confess. And anyway. The, the judge almost declares a mistrial. He c- clearly considers it and in the kind of mistrial that throws out the charges mm-hmm. and says, this is done and nothing's happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, the, there's been talk of the judge's bias because he, his ringtone is patriotic and like uh-huh. All, uh-huh. all kinds of non-issues. But in, in a lot of ways, the real disagreement is not in whether or not this looks like self-defense. It does. It, it's in... It's in whether or not you think he was immoral in some way in how in making the decisions to be there in the first place, and thus that would make him accountable for the deaths. But that's not how justice works. That's not how the the that's not how you would make the case that he's some kind of murderer mm-hmm. um, by saying that by being there he he set things up so that they got killed. That that completely ignores the personal responsibility elements in the, the you know individual guilt versus innocence in the system that we have and i don't want a different system i think that <laughs> system is like i don't want some kind of mob justice where they're like no, no 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 you you went there and you shouldn't have been there and we're blaming we're putting the blame for all of the chaotic events on yeah, you basically because we think your decision to be there was basically if, if that's the kind of ruling that you'd have what that means is that if you're on the wrong side of history, you're guilty. And it doesn't matter yeah. about the particular <laughs> yes. instances of the event. It just matters whether or not you're morally right or morally wrong. And if you're morally wrong, which is, of course, will determine, then then you're just straight out of luck. You're guilty. And that, and yeah. that would be the, yeah. the creepiest ramification with serious consequences long term from this case. Well, and it is it is what is called for when we say social justice. Mm-hmm. And, and why it's opposed fundamentally to individual mm-hmm. justice. It, it suggests it suggests the, the symbolic understanding of Kyle Rittenhouse as this thing you were describing earlier is, is the right understanding because it's about the social groups, not about the individuals. And yeah, it's a, it's, it's a quick path to tyranny and to 
massive amounts of injustice. I hope the jury isn't so biased that they convict him of something serious. It's possible, but I hope not. It's so political, like you were saying, that, that you never know if the jury can't have been properly insulated from the events it's in impossible. the way that you would want them to be. Yeah, it's just, the news is just too big. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not until cryogenic freezing is a thing, and any time any time a political crime occurs, we find you know twelve people who haven't heard about it yet. We cryogenically freeze them and then unfreeze them when the trial is ready to ready to begin. It's the only, that's that's all I got. That that's one possibility. The other one is you could uh, you could offer the plaintiff. You could say or the the accused. You could say, "Would you like us to freeze you?" And then you could be tried by a generation that doesn't know you. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. We got all sorts of ideas. Third option. This, this gives us lots third of Third option. I think we've mentioned this before is we actually, instead of having a trial of your peers, we're going to fly you out to a country that hasn't even heard about this case, which <laughs> yeah. there's probably only two in the world. And we're going to get some translators and we're going to get this taken care of. <laughs> a jury of... Of specifically not your peers. Exactly. Like we're looking for anybody but your peers, because your peers would know. <laughs> Even peers in the loosest sense are going to know. <laughs> I like these plans. Mm-hmm. I like this. Mm-hmm. We, we need to find somebody we can run these yeah, we're gonna We're going we're gonna to change the justice system through <laughs> the use of cryogenics and air flight. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's going to be very expensive. Okay, <laughs> moving on, moving on. The second issue is vaccines. And this is one that Brad convinced me of in but we, we've talked a lot about vaccines, right? There's lots of things happening. The mandate's interesting. The statistics are interesting. There's uh, The effectiveness of the vaccines is interesting. We've hit all of these at various points. Um, what's left to hit, Brad? So, walk so, yeah, walk so, us up to what your, your issue is. So, so the, the simplest explanation for why we're talking about this is, as Dan put it, we don't want to talk about COVID. We've been upfront about that from the beginning. And... Uh, and so we talk about COVID when we feel like we need to talk about COVID. There's something that's not being said. And as Dan put it earlier today, you know, as far as he had seen it up until recently, we had covered all the important things. You know, the we talked about how the vaccine was effective, not 100% effective, but effective. We talked about how how there are, there are risks to the vaccines that, that aren't completely covered. And so when you're looking at whether or not to get vaccinated, you want to do a, you know, a, a risk-benefit analysis based off of your age and your other factors to determine whether or not that's a good idea for you. We've talked about how it's uh, unethical to presume people are, uh, are guilty just because of the possibility they could be infected, and therefore you can't do things like the vaccine mandate or, you know, or restrict the freedoms of the unvaccinated as if they had committed a crime and talked about the un- the injustice of that. And we thought we were good, right? And that's kind of where we had left no, it. Yeah. And, and I've been looking at stuff for the past week and a half, and I've been stewing with it, and it's just made me very uncomfortable. And as I told Dan a while ago, I felt like I was going crazy because I was seeing these things and then hearing what was being said and there was this this big disconnect, right? And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And and I, I don't even know how to start talking about this, but let's talk about, uh, I'm going to start with this LA Times article that came out quite recently, November 12th, so that's yesterday, talking about how the CDC is shifting their focus and kind of shifting the goalposts in terms of... Uh, In terms of the vaccines, end quote, vaccines have been quite effective at preventing cases of COVID-19 that lead to severe illness to severe illness and death, but none has proved reliable at blocking transmission of the virus, Jones noted. Recent evidence has also made clear that the immunity provided by vaccines can wane in a matter of months. By the way, the Jones being referenced here is Dr. Jefferson Jones, who's on the CDC's COVID-19 task force. So, so the CDC is talking about the fact that that the the vaccine not only is waning, which everyone's been talking about a lot for the past few months in regards mm-hmm. to the booster shots, and obviously the booster shot is the solution to the waning, you know, effectiveness. Not only is it waning in effectiveness in that sense, but also it is not reliable at blocking transmission of the virus. Now this is what this is what this is what got me going. Not this article particularly, but this 
this fact, because this fact has actually been known for months. The CDC first talked about how there was there was this small village, I think it was in Massachusetts, where they realized that the vaccinated could spread the virus just like the unvaccinated. Not necessarily at the same rate, but they could definitely spread it. And the question then becomes, well, if they can spread it, especially at a at a at a decent rate, then why is there this talk about herd immunity? And why is there this talk about the unvaccinated being the main problem for spreading it and not the vaccinated? And it's interesting because later on in this article, just a few paragraphs later, it says, quote, and if public health officials stop talking about the herd, people may lose sight of the fact that vaccination is not just an act of personal protection, but a way to protect the community. And as I as I read through this whole article, I'm trying not to cherry pick for you here. I, I read the article and I'm not seeing an argument being made in this article about how it protects the community versus personal protection. In fact, the article seems to be making the opposite argument, which is that the vaccine has proven to provide personal protection but has not been providing community protection in the in that herd immunity because it's not stopping the transmission of the virus. And so that's the first thing. The first thing is is this this major confusion here. And then there's this other thing. We know that the COVID-19 vaccine the COVID-19 that COVID-19, sorry, I keep switching between the two and I lose track word-wise. That COVID-19 <laughs> is the most dangerous for those who are older, especially much older, right? And that right. those who are younger have very low death rates. Those who are under 18 have incredibly low death rates, which means that when we're looking at the people who are dying, they're almost all adults. In terms of statistical relevance, they're all adults. You know what I they're mean? They're all adults. Yeah. All of right, the, right, right. you know, of the 600,000 or however many who have died, the vast majority are adults. That's what matters in terms of the statistical significance. And even more of those are from those who are older. And we keep talking about the fact that people aren't vaccinated and that's the problem. But people who are 75 and older, 79.03% of this population are fully vaccinated and over 90% have received one dose. Those who are 65 to 74 82.84% .84 are fully vaccinated and 95.24% have had at least one dose. So 65 and up, everyone 65 years and older, which are where the vast majority of, of these deaths have come from, or at least the majority of these deaths have come from, are 79% or more vaccinated against COVID, right? And right. then, of course, it's not like below that no one's vaccinated. You know, you've got 50 to 64, 70%, you know, 40 to 49, 60%, you know, between 50 and 70%, for the other adult populations. And so when you right. look at the United States and you say, okay, the adults in general are at least 50% vaccinated. The, they're, they're much higher the than The most at-risk adults are closer to 80 to 85% fully vaccinated, 80 to 82, 79 to 82% fully vaccinated. And yet we are still getting massive death tolls and massive death tolls relative to the case counts. If you look at a if you look at the New York Times uh, source for for cases and deaths, which is what you'll find on Google if you search covid deaths in the USA and we'll link this. If you look at the whole scope of covid from start to finish, you'll see a small rise at the beginning and then you'll see a big spike last winter and then you'll see a decent sized spike this fall, right? And that's right. in case counts. You then switch from case counts to death counts, and you'll see a mirror. You'll see a bigger spike at the beginning, the biggest spike during last winter, and then a medium-sized spike of deaths during this fall. And those spikes, especially those second two hills, match almost perfectly the case counts. And so, yes, the death counts are lower now than they were last winter. But they're not way lower. They're maybe 60% of what it was before, 
which doesn't add up if the if the vaccine is 90% effective and 80% of those who are most at risk have have gotten the vaccine and at least 50% of all of those who are basically at risk right. have gotten have gotten it it doesn't make sense at all especially when you match that up against the case count cuz it should have way more cases per death and so i'm looking at all of this data which seems to, to disagree with the narratives that I'm being told across the board. This is not just CNN. Everyone agrees the vaccines are incredibly effective. They may not block it as well, but they should still be blocking it to some degree. They've argued for a long time that- should be decreasing the deaths significantly. Not just that, but that mm-hmm. breakthrough cases themselves are more rare. So if you're vaccinated, you're less likely to get it and you can still spread it, but you are less likely to get it and you're less likely to be hospitalized and die. And yet we're still neck deep in the pandemic. And I just can't figure out why. I haven't gotten a satisfactory explanation to what is going on. I feel like I'm going crazy. That's what I told Dan. (laughs) I said, I don't, I feel like I'm going crazy. It's that's, and it's interesting because I, I have not paid much attention to, to COVID at all. Um, Where I'm at in Texas, I don't hear about it. You know, masks are optional virtually everywhere with, with rare exceptions, like maybe doctor's offices. Um, which is probably a good idea to wear a mask generally. <laughs> you know, the more, the more you think about in it. In a doctor's <laughs> office, yeah, no kidding. That maybe, might, maybe might a doctor's office. Might be the best office. place in the world to wear a mask. Yeah, maybe that should be a normal thing. But anyway, uh, and so I haven't, I haven't been even looking at the numbers. I rarely run into people who are still arguing about it. You know, there's the, in, in the Dallas area, there are, the, the politics are pretty mixed in Dallas. You know, it's a, it's a massive city. There, the ratio, I don't know what the ratio is off the top of my head of like Democrats to Republicans, but it's probably much closer to equal and maybe even favors Democrats. I would guess it probably favors Democrats. Um, just cause that's the way big cities work, even in red states. Um, but, but it's interesting to hear you talk about this cause, cause the numbers, I had felt like the numbers were pretty set. We had a good idea of how effective everything was and how things were playing out. But then you started showing me some of these, like, oh, wait, 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 wait. People with the vaccine still transmit the disease. In fact, their peak viral load is similar in breakthrough cases. Breakthrough cases, where we were trying to find how many, you know, what are the odds of a breakthrough case? What's the, how likely is a breakthrough case? Well, and, 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 you know what I, and the great answer about that is that back in May, the CDC decided to stop tracking breakthrough cases unless there was severe illness attached to it. Yes. And so we don't yes, know. And so the answer is we don't know. And you can't find out that data. You can find it out there in are some small states, populations yes. where they do testing, but generally that data is not being collected in the same way. Yes. You can't get a U.S. thing. Some states are doing it. And uh, in, yeah, like you said, some small areas are doing Cause it. Because like the CDC um, is doing small investigations. You know what I mean? They're doing little tests to find information. Like that's how they found out about the vaccinated being spread in the first place was testing the small group of people. Interesting. Okay, that that makes that makes sense. Then that rings a bell. Um, but the the way that comes out is is we don't know what the breakthrough rate is, but it seems very high. And by breakthrough rate, we mean you got sick, even though you were fully vaccinated. Yeah, you got. Now we do know, or not even sick, but you got COVID nineteen. You became right. infected. You became infected. Yes, right. You don't have to feel sick. You can't. You became infected, and the infection has spread through your body. And in which case you're going to hit a similar level of how infectious you yeah, are. And that's what you're talking about with the viral load, that they found that yes, the, viral the viral load, load amongst vaccinated was similar to the unvaccinated. Yes. Now, you will be infectious for less time if you are vaccinated because, uh, because you're, you know, it'll be, it'll be a less severe case. But, but then things are fuzzy again. Right? So we go, okay, well, that's bad. And that, that means, first off, the conclusion of that, of knowing that it spreads among those who are vaccinated and that there are a significant amount of, of breakthrough cases is how many, how many we do not know, but it seems like a ton. Uh, or at least a significant number. A significant number. There, then, then vaccinations are not going to solve this, right? Herd immunity is not going to happen. The point of herd immunity is so that it doesn't spread. If it's spreading through breakthrough cases... There are tons of, if there are a significant amount of breakthrough cases and it is spreading from the people who have breakthrough cases, herd immunity is impossible. Because they will continue to spread whether, even if you have a hundred percent vaccination, mm-hmm. we which we've already vaccinated. established is impossible. Which, 
Which is why that article that you were reading is bizarre, because then it talks about, well, wait, 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 if we talk about this, it's going to lose, lose sight of the goal of herd immunity. It's like, we, you just quoted someone saying, it's going to lose sight of the goal that impossible. it protects the community when you're vaccinated, even though they don't yeah. have any evidence that it does anymore. You know what I mean? It's not right. clear that it's a way to protect the community. It seems more right. and more that vaccination becomes a personal issue. Right, which is, which is interesting. But, but then to your second point, the, the, the data showing what you, what you could say is if our death rates are still high, it must be because we have way more cases. Yeah. If, if the because, vaccine is really like said, effective at stopping people from dying, then you'd have to have more cases. You have to have more cases in order to get this many deaths. But if you look at the cases listed, that's not the ratio of cases to deaths, which is how you would draw a fatality rate, is very similar. It looks like it's gone down, but not a lot. And, and what's interesting, Dan, is that the argument that keeps being made is that the people who are dying are the unvaccinated, right? How many times have you heard that? The people yeah. who are in the hospitals, the people who are dying are the unvaccinated. And we already know uh -huh. that the people who are hospitalized and the people who are dying are the elderly. And so what I'm wondering is, is the argument being made that this 20% of those 65 and older who aren't vaccinated are now getting infected at such a crazy high rate that they're able to, you know, they're able to get infected and die at a rate that they're making up for the fact that 80% of the population is now immune. Like it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that that 20%, even if there were crazy high levels of transmission, like it would have to be, you know, three or four times more cases as there were last winter in order to justify that. You know, I mean, really, this yeah. would have to be a huge outbreak of epic proportions to justify those numbers. Or am I reading it wrong? No, no, that's that's one possible explanation. Well, no, that that is the explanation, right? That's the only way it works. Uh, unless by freak coincidence, all of the most vulnerable people are getting it, mm -hmm. right? And, and no one else. Like, like the other the other things are so statistically unlikely that it just doesn't, doesn't make, make sense. sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's possible that the total number of cases is way higher than what's reported. And then, and like you said, it would have to be, uh, depending on, you know, who we're, uh, among whom the, the, it's spreading, it's got to be at least three or four times higher and it, should, and it should probably be like seven or eight times higher to justify that many deaths if the vaccine is as effective as it says. Um, but, and, and that could be the case, I suppose, if most of the cases just aren't getting reported now because they're so, uh, you know, so harmless. They're just not, not, not bad. But that, but at some point, I don't know, there's so many questions here. Like uh, natural immunity is an, is a massive thing. It's still the most effective immunity. And there's been a ton of people who've got COVID. Already, yeah. Already. Um. And maybe, maybe what we're seeing is like you were saying, you mentioned that, uh, that vaccines diminish in efficacy. Mm -hmm. Maybe they've diminished at such a rate that, that in, in practice, they're just not very effective right now. No, and, and, and th th that in practice, we might as well not, but it's got to be close to basically we don't and, have and that here's, for the numbers. And here's my sense. problem, Dan, because for each of the concerns I bring up, there will always be an answer. You say, okay, well, right, well right, there right. are these breakthrough right. cases and they say, yes, but it still protects against disease. And then you say, oh, well, people are still dying. And they say, oh, it's just because of that percent that's not vaccinated yet. They're all the ones who are dying. And then you say, well, how can you have that many? And they say, oh, well, it's because of the Delta variant. So the Delta variant is now spreading amongst the vaccinated and causing it. And each time there's this, this explanation, but when you keep stacking them on top of each other, it doesn't <laughs> yeah, make yeah. any sense. Yeah, there are too many places where the data doesn't make sense, right? You could explain any one of them, but all together. Because, because all together, if all of these things are true, then, then, then the whole argument that this is a that this is a uh, a virus of the a pandemic of the unvaccinated as Joe Biden once said is not true. You know what I mean? If you accept all of those things then your conclusion is is that whether or not people get vaccinated really is up to them. You know what I mean? It doesn't it doesn't matter. And and so your your end result is okay, well 
<laughs> maybe that's why people aren't talking about this is because the data seems to indicate more and more that number one, this is not going away in any way, shape or form. Number two, the vaccines, whether or not they're working to some degree, are not working the way we were told they were work. They would work at all. They're not going to end this pandemic in any way, shape, or form, and they're not going to protect other people in the ways that we were promised. And so, so many of the things that we've been told have now yeah. been shown to be completely inaccurate, and no one's talking about that fact. No, no one's talking about the fact that we're we're sitting here in what appears to be a a web of, if not outright lies, then at least lies of omission. At least errors, yeah. And and the only people who are talking about it are conspiracy theorists. You know what I mean? That's and that's how it feels sometimes. You know, and I think that's mm -hmm, part of the mm -hmm. problem is that people don't want to talk about it because they don't want to get labeled in with those groups. You know what I mean? They don't want to get labeled as as a whack job. And and I'm not over here arguing that this is Bill Gates' master plan. I'm just saying. <laughs> Well, and honestly, what it looks like- I'm just saying, what is Bill doing what, right yeah, now? Can, can, can someone point to me and say what Bill's doing? No, obviously, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that what I think is happening is you've got this noble lie, right? And the noble lie is all built on the idea that we have to get people vaccinated. That noble lie is now built on a foundation of so many lies- that even the reason to have the noble lie is no longer there. You know what I mean? Because the whole point of the noble lie is we need to get people vaccinated. And yet that's not so clear anymore. It's not so clear that we need to get people vaccinated. People, you know, if, you, if you're still believing all of, all of these things that are stacking on top of each other, then yes, people can still benefit from being vaccinated. But whether or not they are vaccinated is not as significant because you're not going to achieve herd herd immunity so you don't need to hit this tipping point you're not ever going to get rid of the the the, pan, the pandemic which was what was being argued it's just going to come down to a personal health decision which we already have so many of those that people make on a regular mm -hmm. basis and yet we're not telling them how they should should or shouldn't act and so i just feel I, it's just weird it's just weird so many unanswered questions dan Yes, and and as you said, all of this, all of these incongruities, all these all these moments where the things just don't line up, uh, not only undermine all the stories, but they undermine every institution that's tried to explain it. Every every group that's tried to make sense of this looks sillier and sillier because it doesn't add up. The numbers, you know, things things aren't working out, and you can you can. Create an enemy, which is what the politicians do, right? You can say it's this group's fault, mm -hmm. and that there's a lot of appeal in that, and people will buy that to some degree. But it really undermines the credibility of all the institutions. It really hurts the any faith we have that an expert could have navigated this pandemic well. Mm -hmm. right? I, I think I think at this point nobody could nobody could have done could have walked through this in a way where they were making the right calls at the right time. I, I think it was impossible. I think we didn't have the information at the time. We still don't have the information, right? We still don't know basic things like how effective is the vaccine. Yeah, which is, which is crazy that we don't know that. Right. How effective is the vaccine at, at reducing death? I don't know. The numbers don't add up with, uh, with the numbers we've seen thrown around. Yeah. How effective is how it effective as is stopping infection? No idea. You know, how many breakthrough cases are there? No idea. Right, right. Simple, not just simple things, but essential things, if you wanted to make good decisions about it, are, are unavailable. And you could probably find a paper on some of those things. I didn't dig too much into the, the, the most recent papers on this. But even then, that's, that's the point, right? Is that it, what it appears to most people is that the science or the argument that's being made is that the science is obvious and we have to follow it. It's not. It never has been. It never has been in this pandemic. No, and, and what's so frustrating is that we have, and this is something that a Dark Horse podcast talked about recently, is this illusion of consensus. Because what you have is, well, they have to be right because everyone's in agreement. And they point to articles where they say, yes, we're, we're you know, the vaccines are working. <laughs> and yet when you actually read those articles that are so-called part of the consensus, 
they'll admit that actually in the details, it's not so clear. You know what I mean? Even though these are part of the consensus, you know, the CDC agrees that the vaccine is working, even though the CDC openly admits they don't have data on so many of the critical areas that would help prove that the vaccine is working. Yeah, they would tell you how yeah. how much yeah, it's working. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. then you combine that with the fact that the pushback against people who are so-called anti-vax and unvaccinated is so incredibly strong in, in the media and in social media in so many different ways that people are strongly discouraged from having discussions like this one, you know what I mean? Without, uh-huh. without ending up in a group, you know, a great example is dark horse podcast where they have become the anti-vax podcast, you know what I mean? And have been, you know, attacked <laughs> repeatedly by many different organizations and groups and peoples and, and have lost a lot of, you know, I mean, they've, they've lost a lot of their livelihood because of it and keep getting grouped into many different things that they didn't want to be grouped into because they <laughs> right. took a stand, you know, and, and that's something that, I mean, we didn't want to be labeled as the, you know, the COVID-19 podcast. That wasn't our goal. We wanted to talk more generally about things, but even this, having this conversation can put us into that box and that discourages people from having the, the conversations and asking the questions and the end result of that, which is what they talked about is that it gives the illusion of consensus. They're like, no, everyone agrees. The science is clear. Everyone agrees. <laughs> All the science agrees that this is what it is. And so let's just move on. Having having shot all the dissenters, we now have unanimous agreement. Having, having shot all the, it's not even that. It's having right, right, right. Having decided that some of these questions aren't worth worth asking, like how many breakthrough cases there are, we have concluded that the answers are favorable. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. This is a lot of people. There's been a lot of talk about. As a segue into this next section, there's been a lot of talk about what do you do about the institutions, right? How do you, how do you, <laughs> there's, there's the question from the two sides. Why won't the people believe, why don't the people trust the institutions? Yes, they're wrong some of the time, but they should trust them. Their, their expertise is such that, you know, they're, they're the most likely to guide us through or whatever. But then there's the, how do you, um, the practical question of if you're running such an institution, how do you regain people's trust? That's that's putting the responsibility on the right group, right? If you if you are acting in a trustworthy manner, um, then your you know people's trust in you should increase, mm-hmm. unless you accept that they're just crazy, which is often, which unfortunately because of politics is often how people are treated. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. It's much easier to demonize someone who's just crazy than someone who's reasonable who you have to actually argue with. Um, and that, that kind of battle line is half the problem. But if you wanted to improve the institutions, the tendency is to critique them. It's to say, this is why, this is how the CDC is wrong. Right? And that's, that is helpful to a degree. Right? You need voices outside of the, especially when the institutions are very centralized, like the CDC is. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> initially there were a lot of studies on COVID-19 from different universities that were virtually quashed or they tried to quash them, right? That came up with anything that was remotely different from the the political narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, you need those. You need lots of different institutions looking at the same thing. And if you think on the whole, the institutions have become so corrupted that that what they're doing is not good, right? You have to be a const- constantly critiquing them. The solution is to build a new institution. You can, it, it's very difficult to save an institution. What you need to do is you need to provide a better option that then can outcompete that institution. Then that institution will probably change. It'll probably start doing what you're doing, right? But it's in the creation of a new institution that real progress is made, not in the critiquing. It's not in the, unless you yourself are I mean, in the process of critiquing, in some ways, you can aspire to become an institution under your under your own. But if you wanted to, if you want to re- to correct the CDC, you have to build something better than the CDC. And one of the groups that's doing this in a really cool way is the group forming the University of Austin. If you haven't heard about the University of Austin, 
it's uh it's put together by a bunch of the people we listen to <laughs> it's it's put together by it's founded by a bunch of people like the like heather hying from the the dark horse podcast uh who has found herself without an institution to call home mm-hmm. right doing their own thing despite the fact that they can do it as well or better than anyone else right super competent people who don't have a home in the institutions because the institutions themselves kick out dissenters. Um, Barry Weiss wrote an article about the University of Austin, and she is also involved in it. Uh, Actually, the, you know the, her the article on, uh, on her substack is not written by her. Oh, you're it's, correct. It's yeah, written it's by, by the, the new president of the University of Austin. And I don't, uh, Pano yeah, I don't know how to pronounce that name. Yeah, P A N O. Yeah, I've Pan- I've never I've Pan- never seen that name before. Never Pano. seen that. Canellis is the last la- name, something like that. Yeah, it t- and it talks about. Uh, that's thank you for pointing that out. I thought it was written by Barry Weiss. It's on. It's under her name in the Substack, mm-hmm. but it's a uh, but it's not uh, not hers apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to read a few lines from it because this is this is why they're looking at the other higher education institutions, and they're explaining why they're creating a new one. Because you can always reform it, right? You can always say, go go climb the ranks of some university, be a good influence, you know, stay there, make it better. Mm-hmm. No, that's always the argument that's given, right? It is, yes. Uh, nearly a quarter of American academics in the social sciences or humanities endorse ousting a colleague for having a wrong opinion about hot-button issues such as immigration or gender differences. Right? Mm-hmm. It's almost 25%. Yeah. American professors. Well, professors in those certain areas. And yeah, in the social sciences or humanities, right? which, which includes politics, psychology, right? Lots of, lots of the things uh, uh, where you're talking political theory, any of, any of those are going to be in the humanities and mm-hmm. social sciences. Um, all of the cultural areas are in the humanities and social sciences, mm-hmm. all of the political areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and nearly a quarter of them if you disagree with them, if you have the wrong opinion, a different opinion than your own, are happy to oust you, right? How's that for a working environment? Twenty five percent of your colleagues, if you disagree with them, are want you gone. Well, and it's and it's important to note that note that in the context of the way universities were set up, and the reason we have things like tenure in universities was to insulate you. And by you, I mean the professor from outside forces. Mm-hmm. That the idea of a university is this is an idea. This is a place where truth and learning is what we care about above everything else. And so we're going to protect you as professors, as students, from those outside pressures, so that you can just yeah. think, and we can develop that more than anything else. And yeah. ousting someone for thinking something wrong is not just thinking. <laughs> no right it's 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 counter to the original mm-hmm. goal that is worth pointing out uh over a third of conservative academics and phd students say they have been threatened with disciplinary action for their views four out of five american phd students are willing to discriminate against right-leaning scholars you can you get into uh <laughs> the undergraduates are even worse the undergraduate students if if uh I guess four out of five American PhD students willing to discriminate against right-leaning scholars is probably the worst, but but the undergraduates are much worse than the professors. 62% of sampled college students agree that the climate on their campus prevented students from saying things they believe. And nearly 17%, 70, excuse me, nearly 70% of students favor reporting professors if the professor says something students find offensive. <laughs> Professors, I've, I, and you hear, I've heard a number of interviews from professors who are self-censoring because they, they know that a significant portion of their students, apparently nearly 70%, mm-hmm. uh, are happy to report them if they're offended. No, oh, and there's plenty of anecdotal evidence for this. I mean, there's, there's this new rise of, uh, of uh i would i want to call them renegade intellectuals a lot of them are popping up in podcasts a great example of that is a jordan peterson jordan peterson 
you know, he had ideas that weren't politically correct. I mean, his idea was that you couldn't force people to say things. He didn't believe in forced speech. That's the stand that he originally took. And he was having students protesting his class. I mean, there was there was huge backlash in the university where he where he was teaching because of of his because of the things that he was thinking, you know what I mean? Because of the things that he was thinking, he couldn't teach his class in a normal way anymore. And then you look at uh, right. the Dark Horse podcast, Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein, and it's a similar story. You know what I mean? Where right. there's they're this, chased out of Evergreen where, literally by a yeah, mob. Yeah, exactly. Where you have these mobs in these universities who are chasing out people who aren't thinking the correct things. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's this In this essay, it mentions... In this letter, he mentions thought police. That's this basically. You know, we've got thought crimes here. Yeah, we we could go on. There's it, it's 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 disturbing to say the least. And so, what do you do? What do you do? Do you go there and be the professor who speaks their mind and then gets canned for mm-hmm. it? Right? Do you do you risk that? Do you now? Obviously, if if the professors who didn't believe in this nonsense stood up, maybe it would work. But in some ways, that time has already passed. In some ways, in some ways, the the mobs have won. Mm-hmm. You get the the on most of the campuses, the student demands are tra- are treated as this kind of sacred moral obligation, where you get you get them pushing around not only professors, but the presidents and the mm-hmm. and the other university administrators in ways that are in ways that are ridiculous, especially when you realize how the funding works. And that the payment of the students is actually not that essential. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You can lose in in a lot of these major institutions. They actually don't need the students but at all. It's, it's not <laughs> even about it's not even about the the students voting with their with their wallets. It's about the fact that those protests, those those mobs, are being supported by yes. by most organizations. You know what I mean? When the media reports on those mobs, they're not reporting on them as mobs. They're reporting on them as righteously indignant students who are standing up for these good ideas. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And the, Mm -hmm. these, these old repressed university presidents who aren't letting, who aren't letting them, you know, achieve their goals. And, and and no one wants to stand up to that because they know they could be, they could be ousted quite easily because because no one wants that kind of negative attention. I can't believe what students get away with. Like I, the one where Jordan Peterson was speaking in a church and, uh, and they went to the windows and were all banging on the windows of this church. And, uh, and so you couldn't hear anything, mm-hmm. right? So the, the, the whole lecture is, is paused, put on hold. Um, and they start chanting, burn it down. This mm-hmm. is this is French Revolution. Like this is <laughs> this is mob rule in the in the craziest way. Of course, they don't they didn't burn it down, which is good. Which is some some you know some uh, a good sign, I guess. It has a, it could certainly get worse. But I don't know how students can do things like disrupt speakers in an event and not simply get get thrown out. Right? They're campus police, and if you don't want to stick the campus police on, I'm fine. Tell them if they don't leave, they will be expelled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, start disrupting suspending the students for for disrupting teaching, which is what the university is there for. Which is yeah, which is what you would do if a student just started like yelling in a class, yeah. right? Like it's not like this; they've never encountered this problem. It's that they've allowed this problem, and so that it's become the norm, and in ways that are just bizarre. Like why, like. <laughs> How did that become a thing? Why wouldn't you just kick them out? You've got you've got hundreds, often hundreds or even thousands of students at an event with a speaker, and they're allowing a f- small group of them to disrupt the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like it, there was often money paid to the speaker, right? This is a formal event. Why on earth is that being tolerated? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be, and it shouldn't be. It's 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 bizarre. It's bizarre. I don't. I don't I don't understand it for a second. And it's, and it's, it's why you need this. It's why the University of Austin is coming together. And they talk about what they're going to do, the, the warped incentives of higher education. They mentioned that, I mean, a lot of colleges, I, I said that colleges are not competing for money. They are. 
the biggest ones are not. I'm talking like the Ivy League ones, which are also engaging in this kind of mm-hmm. uh, kowtowing to the students that they don't they don't have to. Uh, smaller universities are really struggling because they're, the student enrollment is going down, and COVID has absolutely <laughs> just destroyed that. Right? Just. But this is the kind of institutional creation that we desperately need. We need people with reputations, good reputations, to come together, not just one or two here. This is one of the things that I've never understood about podcasters or, or uh, you know, popular speakers, that they don't coordinate their efforts to create things. And some of them do, and I mean, they're, they're trying. I'm not, I don't mean to be so critical of them overall. But it seems like tactically they could be extremely effective with their influence. And I influence. think this is just another evidence of the fact that it. they've realized that same thing. Yes. And they are changing how they're doing things. This is it. Joe Rogan could single-handedly build a university. Like, I don't know if he, he probably knows that, mm-hmm. right? He's, he's, you listen to Joe Rogan talk about his own influence and he's like, I don't know, man. I just have to keep doing what I'm doing because if I think about it too much, I'll probably change it and then it won't work. <laughs> but, but they have so much power. They need to flex it to create useful things. Not, this, isn't, this isn't flexing political power to impose your ideas on someone else, right? This is to offer an option with good values and a good product, right? This is to yeah, make a and business and using that your works. influence to do things like secure funding and and you know and to attract potential students. You know what I mean? When you combine, you know, this group of individuals, you know, Neil Ferguson, Barry Weiss, Heather Hying, Joe Lonsdale, Arthur Brooks, Kathleen Stock, Dorian Abbott, and Peter Bogosian. Just to name a few, because they, they they go on and yeah, they have Pinkerton and, and, and others and list yeah. many many more. When you combine their influence, there are millions of people who have learned, you know, through a long period of time that these people are worth respecting and worth listening uh-huh. to, uh-huh. and they've worked hard to earn that respect, and now they're doing something with it. And I think that's truly awesome. The news about it is fun. I don't know if you've looked at any of it. The new university for conservatives, ideologues, and I don't remember in outsiders mm-hmm, or something mm-hmm. like that. Like most of these people are very liberal. No, yeah, I mean <laughs> Barry Weiss and Heather Hying in that list, those they are not conservatives. To call them conservative would just be just straight nonsense. <laughs> just wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Their, their political views are not conservative. It's But they are independent thinkers and they're worth mm-hmm. listening to. They want to they want to reason and, and think things through and highly recommend both of them. It's just they're just not conservative. Not that we're conservative either, but we're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just don't fit that mm-hmm, label, mm-hmm. right? It's just interesting. Um, no, and, and, and you and could it's, accuse it's us of super being conservative exciting. more than you could accuse them of being conservative. Yes. For sure. Yes, that's true. That's true. That's true. We certainly have more overlap than they do. Yeah, it's, it, it will be an incredible group of people. And, and honestly, their influence is such, it's so stacked that I, can, that I can't imagine this failing unless they, uh, you know, uh, Except perhaps in some some government. Well, they're doing it in Texas, which helps. Um, getting it through the uh, through the accreditation thing is difficult, mm-hmm. but with th- this group, it shouldn't be that. I, it shouldn't be a problem. They should be able to do it. This this group is so competent and so uh, and have so much influence between them and the place that they've chosen to do it and whatnot. I can't see this getting getting stopped. But anyway. Anyway, it's exciting. It is exciting. It's exciting, and it could be a turning point. This this is what you need. You need to stack it so strong that it can't help but succeed. And you could do that in a variety of different yeah, because you know they're going to receive serious obstacles. You know it's going to be harder for them to get accredited than it would be for a normal small university. Yes. Yes, there will be every barrier that can be put in their way will be put in their way. But I think they'll succeed. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think it will be... Uh, it could be a, a, you know, an overwhelming success. It could change the landscape. So There's, it's, it's nice to end on an exciting yeah, note. There are Something, good something's things. being created. And, and yeah, we, and there's, and this is just one part of this and people keep labeling, labeling it as a conservative or I, you know, yeah. ideologues and all of this, but really it's just independent people who are, who are doing things differently. You know, Barry Weiss creating, you know, you know, her substack and, and hiring reporters to, to build an actual organization is just an example of that. You know, Joe Rogan creating, 
a source of news and conversation and actual thought that isn't controlled by any major media organization. These are all examples of new, not even institutions yet, but the the kind of seeds of institutions that are creating very viable alternatives to institutions that have become just ineffective is really exciting. Mm-hmm. It is so exciting. Um, I hope all the best for them. It's the kind of place that I would, you know, we could see ourselves associated with just because the goal is so Absolutely. good. Absolutely, The efforts are so many people there that I respect. This is the kind of thing that if uh, if Brad and I were ever to be super influential, we'd probably spend half our time doing the podcast and half our time coordinating these kind of things because that's this is how you actually change things. Part of it is giving people the ideas and, and talking through those things. But so much of it is in the creation of new institutions that must happen mm-hmm. and in the, the coordination of those kind of things. Um, I would love to see something like this with political parties. I mean, Andrew Yang's doing something, but it's uh, but that... That's a fragment of the power that could be, could be mounted, you know, that, that a group like this could put together. Mm-hmm. With that, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.